0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought
1: to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're going to talk about in this episode include... Choosing Cthulhu Monsters. Pistachio Crime. The Library of Babel. And
0: a MacArthur Conspiracy Theory. Cogs and Commissars is a
1: clever card game of glorious robot revolution where players control the means of production. It's from Atlas Games, the publisher of hits like Gloom and Once Upon a Time. The
0: standard edition of Cogs and Commissars is in stores now, but there are also a limited number of
1: deluxe editions left over from The Kickstarter. This most equal apparatchik edition features wood screen-printed citizen tokens, neoprene mats for each faction leader, and a foil-stamped spot-gloss magnetic closure box.
0: The Deluxe Edition is only available direct from Atlas Games while supplies last.
1: If you like feeling smart, take that gameplay, awesome card combos, or satirical Soviet robots, Cogs and Commissars is a game you need to buy immediately. To order, visit
0: atlas-games.com slash cogsdeluxe. Or follow the link in the show notes. As Lenin once said, the capitalist will sell you the rope you use to hang him, in the form of a beautiful collector's edition board game. For the motherboard!
1: The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of dritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the friendly confines of the Gaming Hut. And not only to these confines, but in general, to an all-request episode at Patreon backers, back us then they ask us, then we answer. That's how it works. Michael Fox, for example, Patreon backer extraordinaire asks, how do you decide what monster slash entity to use when designing a Cthulhu scenario? I often get stuck on that, even if I have an inspiration for a setting and general structure. Robin, how do you decide?
0: Uh, well, if you've already got the setting and the general structure, uh, that implies you probably also have a theme or a motif. And so you can either find the Cthulhu creature or mythos entity that best either fits that theme or is a surprising juxtaposition with the theme. And uh, most obviously, you know, if you're in a uh, salt-encrusted village by the seashore, the uh, expectation of the players will be is that they're going to meet uh, Deep Ones. So you can either uh, fulfill their expectations and then flip that on its head and, uh, or, you know, deliver that expectation, but in a surprising way. Uh, you know, you may find out that the community of people have all found a way to cure themselves of their Deep One heritage, and you have to, uh, you find that other people are preying on the Deep One. So that's, it's got Deep Ones in it, but it, it, that turns it on its head. Or, on the other hand, you might pick the entity that is least like your setting. So we associate the, uh, the fungi with Yugath, the good old me go with more sort of science fictional storytelling. So, uh, maybe you've decided to, to set your scenario in a gothic manner. Well. It will be a surprise then if it is me go in the basement uh, rather than uh, one of the entities that uh, more uh, closely adheres to uh, sort of classic uh, horror imagery to the extent that any of Lovecraft's beasties do that.
1: The other thing you can take into account is the sort of... What hasn't happened yet and what will fit into your larger campaign. So if your campaign is sort of a monster of the week, then you can just run through the big book of monsters, what, what, regardless of which rule book it is and say, Oh, that one seems awesome. I would like to introduce that. And then you either retrofit the theme as Robin suggests to fit it or you play up the fact that the Lovecraftian universe is random and horrible and will attack you and that uh, the presence of these monsters uh, is a literal eruption out of an unsane world and into our pretend universe. And, and, uh, the randomness, in other words, of the sort of random encounter becomes part of, part of the larger meta theme of the campaign. Another possibility is if you've got a big bad, uh, say it's Cthulhu, then if you don't know what monster it should be, it should be Deep Ones or Black-Winged Ones or something connected to Cthulhu. Cultists, always a good monster. And then, finally, I feel that once you have sort of, as you say, the setting and the structure, often the setting will inspire something historically when you do the research. So, if you're saying, I want to set my adventure in Kansas, uh, and you dig around and you're like, oh, my goodness, uh, look at this. There was... Um, uh, all manner of, of bad doings at, at Dodge City with gunfights and, 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 and strange outbursts of violence. That sounds kind of like the Loygore to me because that's what they involve themselves is strange outbursts of, of violence. And then you dump a Loygore underneath Dodge City and go to, and then it's sort of, it misses the good old days of Wyatt Earp gunning people down on the street. Hashtag he did not gun people down on the street in Dodge City. And it's trying to recreate them with dreams or, or, uh, or, uh, bootlegger violence. If you're setting your game in into- the 20s or 30s. Uh, So there's all kinds of things that I find pop out of the research when you dig into your setting and suddenly it becomes obvious, oh, this has to be ghouls. That's the only thing that makes sense. Oh, this has to be a color out of space. That's what must have happened to explain this completely legitimate historical event. And when you find one of those, you'll often find so many details that building the whole scenario just automatically becomes a piece of cake, and you don't have to come up with uh, uh, the exposition that the old uh, drunk gives you, because Wikipedia came up with it.
0: Uh, Structure may also help you answer this question for yourself, because uh, uh, the structure of of what uh, happens, or the various things that are likely to happen in the course of your scenario, uh, indicate to you what you need a creature to be able to do. So, some of uh, Lovecraft's uh, beasties are more able to deal with human society than others. So, uh, the rat thing, for example, from Dreams in the Witch House, it, uh, has a human face. It can, uh, it can talk. It can listen. It's intelligent. It's smart. So it can run around through your scenario doing, uh, rodent-like things, but you know, if it needs to uh, drive a car or, uh, you know, open the latch on a door, it's it's more limited in that way. And so, if you if you need something that has sort of a shadowy behind the scenes uh, force, but has that set of constrained limitations on them, and that can be interesting, particularly in a, a mystery focused Cthulhu game, it's like, well, what uh, what entity is it that could do this? So it could, you can also look at what clues do I want the investigators to find that lead them to uh, possibly being uh, whatever it is. So, uh, you know, you can have various, uh, you know, you find uh, one set of clues can be rodent droppings, that indicates, or another set of clues can be, oh, you hear uh, the witness says there was scratching in the walls, and uh, again, to get back to the twist thing, then you can ask yourself what uh, other thing might also be scratching in the walls so that there's some other possibility. And, uh, you, um, here you might want to also consider whether you want to, uh, create a new Mythos entity. Uh, the, uh, this depends on how tired your players are of the classics. And, uh, I know, for Which example- Which they should a, not be. Right. Uh, but eventually, you know, you, you can only do ghouls so many times. It, it, it could be, uh, you know, c- scenario 56. And uh, and sometimes a change is as good as the rest. So If
1: you've done 55 straight scenarios of ghouls, I give you permission to change it up and make up your own graveyard burrowing monster.
0: <laughs> uh, ghouls, of course, are another uh, creature who exists sort of on the edge of being able to deal with society. You know, they can't head down to the supermarket uh, openly, uh, nor would they want to because there's very little carry in there. Uh, but uh, they can talk. In their own way, uh, particularly the ones that have recently, uh, started to transform from human into ghoul and, uh, or, you know, you may know their strange meeping tongue or they might have a translation device or whatever, but you know, they know enough about hanging around graveyards that they know something about society. And, you know, if it's dark enough at night and they have a coat and a hat, they can go and sort of um, uh, move around. So depending on how social and uh settled your setting is you uh, that sort of suggests the smarter more communicative uh possibly even being able to pass for human briefly a group of monsters whereas uh you know a shoggoth in a city is going to imply a quite different uh set of things that it uh can do it can hide down in the sewers but it's not going to be able to uh you know blackmail the maid, into hiding its presence. (laughs)
1: Um, Very unlikely, although, of course, there are certainly versions of the Shagath in various Chaosium books that uh, get spawned out and use their Shaggath's plasticine ability to take human form. So who can say what it can do and not? Plus it's telepathic. It might have been able to blackmail the maid merely by sort of pressuring her on her deepest fears and she feels blackmailed even though sh- uh, no Shoggoth ever actually came to her. She could have even confabulated a screen memory that a mysterious, you know, dark stranger uh, approached her and blackmailed her and that's why she explains that she's doing all these things as she breaks down sobbing under your interrogation spend.
0: Yeah, it certainly is a fun twist to add new capabilities to a classic uh, creature that in this case where, where generally you just sort of think of them as a, as a kind of a blob uh, and that in itself can be a, a twist in that you uh, you think it's a regular Shagath but it turns out to be a uh, uh, super smart if it that uh, has indeed figured out how to navigate in society.
1: Yes, such such twists as might appear in Hideous Creatures, available from Pellgrain Press by a cataclysm of diverse hands.
0: So, uh, is there another uh, way into like, how did can you think of a scenario that you've recently uh, written that didn't start with an, an entity and then you had to figure out what that would be? Or I, I find often The the way that I go in is through, oh well, this is a Migo Migo, or or pretty early on. Like I often go from like one image to what the creature is. So there's, for example, there's a scenario in Even Death Can Die, which is the follow up to uh, Cthulhu Confidential, and features Kenneth Strickfratton. He's the famous prop artist who built and owned the electrical equipment that you see in the lab scene in Frankenstein. And this takes a famous. Uh weird crime uh, spree that occurred in l a and fictionalizes it and moves it uh, backward a few years in time. Uh, but as soon as you start thinking about weird lab equipment and that those images from Frankenstein, that means, oh well, that suggests me go that suggests a a uh, a, a UFO buried somewhere and so it was a quick leap from this crime spree to hey, let's bring in Kenneth Strickfaden to. Oh, it's got to be me go. So I don't often find myself going very far into a scenario before I have an idea who the uh, antagonist is. Have you had an experience of coming up with, uh, is there a different process, a different way to go at that?
1: I mean, in some cases, I mean, the very, very first scenario that I ever wrote for trail, the Kingsbury horror in the core book, um, the, I knew that the bad guy was going to be the, uh, Cleveland torso killer, but I didn't know what the mythos cause was, and I don't want to spoiler it for people who haven't played it, but in some ways, you still don't know what the mythos cause is because the whole point of it is this sort of tangential touch of the unknowable. Now, that makes it kind of a terrible introductory scenario for Trail of Cthulhu. I'll be the first person to admit that, but I think it makes it a a really great scenario for discovering the unknowability of the Lovecraftian universe, both as uh, keeper and as player, because the keeper is presented with, oh, no, there isn't a, a standard set of rules where if there's this kind of sport, it's this kind of thing, or if it's this kind of monster, it means this kind of thing. And that's one of the great things about the mythos is it is endlessly plasticine and mutable and can be shifted around. Most of the scenarios, like you say, I I either begin with a strong knowledge of what is going on. Like, for example, it gives nothing away to say that the current scenario I'm working on for Fall of Delta Green is about hunting the Cthulhu cult. So guess what there has to be? Cthulhu cultists and deep ones and hybrids and a black-winged one flying around killing people. And this is all very standard, but There's other elements within the setting, uh, that I get to play around a little more with and even that is not something that's like way out of left field because in a scenario, you really can't introduce too many, you know, completely wild streams. So there's a, for example, there's a, 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 a cult in Saigon, but they have nothing to do with this adventure. I'll tell you that for free right now, because that would have involved writing another 10,000 words and you just can't physically do that. So that's one of the situations is you do find yourself sort of channelizing toward your original conception. And a lot of times that conception is going to depend, as you say, just on an image. What do you think the bodies look like? If If you have that idea, then it's what could have left those wounds. And you're sort of solving the mystery ahead of the players by figuring out what circumstances produced that scene. Sort of like when Carmen Infantino would... Uh, toss people a cover and it would be, why is the flash beating up Green Lantern? And then it's like, all right, we have to figure that out so we can write the comic book. And that's sort of the way that you think about it because you've got the sort of the cover image or the trailer image. And then you have to figure out what gets you to that point.
0: And, uh, if you are listening to this and plan to be run through those Cthulhu confidential scenarios, just hit yourself on the head with a mallet, knowing there's uh, that creature and it doesn't spoil uh, too much, but you know, just, just let your GM think that you've been uh, very carefully led to that. And on that note, Uh, It's time for us to uh, sneak on into the next exciting commercial.
1: In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet built aircraft that touched the edge of space and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh, boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touch the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos.
0: A government program named majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural a government program named delta green
1: tries to destroy the unnatural in the fall of delta green you play the agents of delta green caught between your oath to america and your duty to humanity caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions
0: written by kenneth height the fall of delta green adapts arc dream publishing's delta green the role-playing game to the award-winning
1: gumshoe engine The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction.
0: Delta Green falls in 1970. The
1: world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website.
0: It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In gumshoe. What are you waiting for? The end of the world? Oh, it's time for that tastiest and most delicious of huts, that most flavorful of huts, full of umami and sugar and all of those good things. Yes, it's the food hut. But because this is an all-request episode, uh, we have a question that leads us into the food hut, and it's a particularly uh, larcenous food hut, or perhaps just one that takes place. In a Dutch supermarket. Question comes from Patreon backer Jacob Borsma who asks, what is the occult or conspiratorial significance of international pistachio thieves? He points us to a recent news story about a rash of pistachio thefts uh, in supermarkets uh, the uh, it's like one group of people who's uh, are described in the article as being from Romania and uh, they are <laughs> sorry and uh, they are I'm sorry uh, it's it's
1: a it's a reflex
0: <laughs> and you can see the hand of an an of an efficient newspaper writer turning a somewhat uh, quotidian story uh, into something more of a thing that can then be passed on to us because first of all it's not only pistachios that are being stolen, and it does seem like certain items are being targeted and and hit, as so it implies that people are uh, shoplifting to order, or uh, probably even more aptly, I would suspect, they know what they can fence, what sort of food items they can fence. For example, uh, American supermarket chains uh, have to be uh, wary about their supply of Tide laundry detergent, which is uh, an underground economy item of currency. Um, Now, I suspect... If you want to be a fun runner about it, they just know somebody who makes baklava who's willing to buy pistachios, no questions asked. Right. But, uh, this brings us to the, uh, the occult and, and uh, mythic side of things. Um, if you look up pistachios uh, on the internet, the first page of results that will come up are a whole bunch of different sites that repeat the exact same text from, uh, clearly, uh, the pistachio marketing board somewhere doing some SEO. And uh, this uh, boilerplate text claims, and we will not examine these claims for the purpose of uh, this uh, because I would wreck it, uh, that Islamic legend has it that uh, Adam brought the first pistachios, uh, and it says, to Earth. And that's maybe not the version of the story. I know, But let's say that he was... Well, uh, I mean, he technically, was way- Adam
1: brought the first everything, yeah. right? I mean, all the plants were the Garden of Eden. Right. That's the point and of
0: it. So I think what we... <laughs> have to translate for the pistachio marketing board is presumably he likes pistachios enough that, you know, they were naked, they felt shame, they clothed themselves, he had a pocket. What could he put and in? And he it? put the pistachio in his pocket as the best, uh, of the nuts. Right. And, and took it, uh, onto the, uh, the, the now spoiled, uh, non-paradisical earth. And then, uh, you know, at least he had some, some nuts to This chew is on. because
1: Adam was a fallen sinful creature. When he was, re- remained pure communion with God, he knew cashews were the best nuts. No. <laughs> But that's neither here nor there.
0: Now, of course, pistachios are are cousins to the cashews, so you're just starting a fraternal war. Yeah, they
1: are. They're in the broader cashew family. And in fact, uh, there are different versions of pistachio. There is the pistachio vera, which comes from Central Asia and spread through the Middle East. Not super fast, but eventually gets to Iraq right around the same time as, uh, the Sumerian culture is building. It winds up in, uh, in Spain and Italy. According to Pliny, it came exclusively from, uh, Syria. Uh, and certainly there is a Syrian pistachio called the Pistachia Palestina. And it is also known as the Terebinth. And the Terebinth, if you went to Bible school or read a bunch of Bible, you will recognize is all over the Bible. It's a big old exciting plant. The word terebinth is Greek, probably comes from a pre-Greek root, a Minuan or even Pelagian root. Um, so that's cool by itself that this uh, tree is, is so buried deep in the, in the, in the soil of, of the Mediterranean. But also what's cool is that the Hebrew word for terebinth is Elah, which means goddess. So literally the pistachio tree contains a goddess. And we can put a pin in that, cycle around. I do want to point out that according to Agrippa's uh Three Books of Occult Philosophy, the pistachio is governed by the planet Jupiter. And according to alchemylab.com, the pistachio is an antidote to spells and curses. So two faultless occult sources uh giving us the lowdown on pistachios. So Robin, we have goddesses we have, um, uh, the, the, the terebinth plant, which I remind our viewers, uh, not only contains a goddess, but it hung poor Absalom up by his hair. Terebinths are just sneaking into the Bible all, all kind of places. And, um, also, uh, they, uh, break love spells. And according to, uh, alchemylab.com, and this is an interesting, uh, coincidence with your Adamic language, the Arabs eat pistachios to bring them back to earth. So, Adam carrying the pistachio from heaven to earth implies a connection, perhaps, to this Arabic legend from, as I remind you, the anthropologically verified alchemylab.com. Right.
0: Uh, So, clearly, what this means is that back in in the story of Adam, there were were only two places. There was heaven and earth. But now we know, after, you know, many uh, millennia, that there are all sorts of different planets and other places. And uh, there are places that are in the heavens. And so, clearly, the pistachio is a transport device uh, that enables you to uh, return to your uh, higher realm or to uh, transport yourself to uh, yet a lower realm. And so uh, if you're already unearthed, uh, you're many realms down by that point. And so uh, you are either a, uh, a creature from a higher realm, perhaps you're an angel, perhaps even a rebel angel, shall we say. <gasps> and uh, perhaps... Uh, nipping on a, a pistachio or twelve will enable you to uh, get back into heaven at least long enough for you to uh, cause some fallen angel sort of trouble and uh, and then get kicked back down here. So uh, I I think first of all, if we're following these pistachio thieves, the reason a fallen angel can't personally go into a supermarket is that they uh, are uh, register uh, their full aura and their invisible wings show up. On uh, CCTV footage, so uh, it's a bad era to be a, a fallen angel because you don't want to wind up on uh, on video because that gives you away and that vastly constrains. Also, your I
1: think if you're a fallen angel and you go to the desert into the dessert aisle, you just start eating. Yes, devil's food cake popping right to mind, but exactly. I'm sure lots of other stuff.
0: Yeah, and so uh, I would say that uh, this uh, this group is being run by a uh, uh, either. Uh, a conspiracy of uh, fallen angels, or um, and they may not be, you know, traditionally fallen. They may actually have just, you know, uh, been trapped here by some other means, and they're and they're trying to get back. And uh, there's also the question, of course, can you, uh, you know, transmigrate back to heaven uh, if you are committing the sin of encouraging pistachio theft? But I'm sure if you're enough of a theologian, you can rationalize that.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, uh, the connection, as we know, between, um, uh, pistachios and fallen angels, uh, goes back again. These goddesses that the, uh, that the Bible speaks of as, uh, the secret, uh, embodiment of the pistachio, probably some sort of, uh, in imputation that the fallen angels travel within the pistachio. Trees, of course, connect heaven and earth. Uh, in all ways, so the pistachio tree would be a channel for them, and uh, one assumes that their reason they're having all these pistachios stolen is not because they're making a lot of baklava, although that would tie in with their sweet tooth, as alluded earlier, but that they are looking for one specific cultivar, or perhaps one specific pure Edenic pistachio, the lineage of which has passed down through the millennia, and is somewhere you know, hopefully in a supermarket in Amsterdam, they've narrowed that down, I guess, or Western Netherlands. And so they've been, you know, going from place to place, looking for this one true pistachio that they can use to restore their pure connection between heaven slash Jupiter slash uh, Gnostic bad heaven and earth. And that they, once they can, Uh, take pleasure in the terebinth, as we say in book, in the book of Isaiah, then Katie bar the door, I guess. They're gonna be up to something. And that's why they're looking for the pistachios. So our, our player characters, who would be a team of monster hunters and a brilliant Dutch angelologist um uh, whose name would have to be something van Himmelzing or something would show up and uh and find this uh series of pistachio thefts and only van himmelzing recognizes this as the spore of the fallen Ella uh the 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 dangerously uh attractive uh non-binary angels who have uh, fallen to earth and uh and worked their wiles on people
0: now there's the the other possibility that, uh, not that, uh, uh pistachio consumption or pistachio based ritual magic can get you back up to heaven, but then, uh, as I alluded to earlier, there's also the possibility that you could use it to devolve down into a lower realm, uh, which by comparison, uh, makes this look like heaven. So it could be that there are a group of people who wish to harrow hell and, uh, need to use the pistachios for that reason. So They're why?
1: Spirit warriors.
0: Yeah. Uh, so why, in that case, do you uh, send other people to steal your pistachios for you? Why do you need not just pistachios? That because you if went- you're
1: going to be going down to Harrow Hell, you can't, first of all, you can't have a rap sheet. That's a bad look. But second of all, you can't have committed a sin directly. You have to sort of say, gosh, I have no idea how we're going to find the Adamic pistachio that will allow us to go harrow hell. I guess we have to sit here in our monastery and remain pure and hope that someone brings a lot of pistachios to our house. And sure, legally you're a couple, but morally, which is the important thing for hell harrowing, you haven't committed theft, which is right against a commandment. You try to harrow hell with that on your on your uh, conscience, Radamanthus grabs you and tosses you into Place in Dante for thieves that I will look up and put into the show notes, or not.
0: Or conversely, you may be so pure that you can't get into hell unless you commit a crime, and uh, by uh, hiring other people to do it for you, you're all you that's you're spreading the sin, and so your objective is to have the minimum possible amount of sin that you committed that you can then get into hell because you don't want to get. Bounce for being a goody two-shoes, but you know that once you're down there, that whatever sin you committed that allowed you to get into hell is then going to be reflected in what you encounter. So it's sort of like, uh, you know, don't imagine the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. It's Mm -hmm. like you're trying to commit the smallest possible infraction to allow you in that will then be the, you know, it's like, okay, so you had someone steal $3.40 worth of pistachios, Okay, well, there's the, there's the lamer room where we punish people who pay other people a shoplift. Okay. And then, you know, that's still terrible. It's in hell, but you know, it's better, it's better than the, uh, the one where the, uh, where the murderers and the, uh, uh, blasphemers and all of those others uh, go. So it could be that some sort of, uh, of criminal act is, is some sort of sin is, is necessary. And you've carefully calibrated. Um, what the the teeniest, tiniest tiniest weeniest one would be
1: yeah um and by the way in in hell the uh thieves are punished uh, in Bolja 7 of the 8th ring of hell which is pretty bad you are filled with serpents and reptiles and they bind you and bite you and burn you alive so uh that is why you have someone else do your actual thieving, and you are just encouraging thieves. So hopefully, you get bound by a wussier reptile in this case. I,
0: I suspect that's what screws you over in the end. Actually, is that you? uh You think that by using a cutout, uh, this is beginning to sound increasingly like like a player character plan <laughs> to come up with. <laughs> it really uh, is. It, isn't okay, it? so we got, we have to commit a, a sin, uh but let's. Let's get these uh, people and make them do it. And then when you get down there, you find out that, oh, it's much, much worse to consign other people to the, uh, to the layer of snakes, uh, which, uh, uh we'll, we'll get into the, maybe some other segment about it. I, I think.
1: Some of Dante may be exaggerated. There may be parts of Hell that (laughs) are boring and stupid. Yeah. Well, next you'll be telling me alchemylab.com is not a reliable source for your occult wisdom.
0: Okay, well, now we're beginning to question everything. Yes. Uh, And and when we begin to question everything uh, on Curtis, it's time to just completely give up and head through (laughs) another commercial and, and see what next listener request awaits our anxious attention. The best of Asphagelne is now available at DriveThruRPG.
1: All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish?
0: Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that.
1: That's the best of Askfageln on drive through Get the right kind of salty by joining such Patreon supporters as Kevin Culp, Ethan James, Isaac Priestley, Linda and Mike Schiffer, and Andrew Dacey. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Patreon backer Michael Dinos asks Ken and Robin, In order to gain access to the universal library of Jorge Luis Borges' The Library of Babel, would I contact Time Watch, An Elder God, The Yellow King, or some other unnamed entity, what would the ramifications for our universe be if we were granted access to said library? Well, I will tell you what the ramifications for our universe would be if I were granted access to said library. No one would get any work out of me ever again.
0: (sighs) Right. Because I I hate to be a premise questioner right from the jump, Mm -hmm. but the question is... No, you don't. (laughs) Why do you want to go to the Library of Babel? Because it is terrible. It is a place... To drive librarians mad, it is uh, a and, and Ken, you would be uh, uh, driven uh, doubly past yourself, mad. outside yeah. yourself because uh, so in the story, it's a uh, an enormous expanse of adjacent uh, rooms and they're all hexagonal, I think. And and the deal is is that uh, it's an infinite number of books essentially, uh, and each book contains a random permutation of all of the uh, letters and uh, pieces of punctuation. Uh, in the alphabet and, uh, Borges, uh, specifies, uh, just like the period, the comma and space, which is not enough to do classic literature. You know, far be it for me to, uh, uh, criticize Borges, but you'd at least need some M dashes and semicolons and
1: so forth. Well, but I certainly so, do.
0: Yes. So it's, it's even bigger and more horrible than he says is, is what I'm getting at. Uh, and, uh, the idea is that every so often a random permutation of all of these elements results in the long goodbye or uh, Zen and the art of uh, motorcycle maintenance or uh, some uh, set of anodyne diary uh, observations from uh, 1632. But most of them are just gibberish and they're, uh, right. and the books of course are unlabeled. So you have to look and look and look to find uh, something good. So perhaps one would be trying to get out of the library of Babel, but just as in the last segment where People presumably had a good reason to go to hell and therefore needed to steal pistachios. I guess we have to assume that people need to get to the Library of Babel. And uh, the ramifications for the universe, well, that that's on you, mate. It's like, have you come up with a way to maintain your uh, uh, sense of self and your connection to the written word uh, when you get there? Again, I, I think we have to hope so.
1: Mm-hmm. Otherwise, the scenario's over.
0: Yeah. So the next question is, how do you get there, and by what uh, methodology? And clearly, any of these answers can be true, because what you do is you have to go through a book, uh, preferably a very famous resonant book, uh, and uh, by focusing on that book, you are then uh, yourself uh, reduced to your constituent uh, uh, letters, uh, not just the ones that make up your DNA strands, but all of the... Uh, letters that compose all of the thoughts and the feelings and the punctuation of every bit of written material that you've ever read, and be pulled through into the equivalent same copy. So you would use a copy of Robert Chambers' 1895 book, uh, *The King in Yellow*, in order to be drawn through into the library, and you would come out the other side where the actual uh, Library of Babel copy of that book uh, sits. Uh, which uh, implies that perhaps even that is the Platonic ideal uh, copy of that book, um, and so perhaps you have to go to some uh, great lengths in order to find, uh, you know, the, not just the first edition, but the the first book off the press, or find Chambers' original uh, copy of that, and uh, you know, is uh, a figure in a pallid mask with a long uh, scalloped yellow robe waiting for you on the other side? Well. Uh You know, I guess you have to find out because, you know, uh you didn't
1: ask Gumby for help. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. So, way, way to pick him there. Um, and that's why you would have to contact Time Watchers because if you're going to find the absolute or ur- copy of King in Yellow, you have to find the one right as Chambers stops writing it. The instant he puts that final period, comma or letter down or space, then that's the moment in which the book is instantiated in the library. So you have to be at at that exact moment, uh, and that's why Time Watch has to dump you out in Greenwich Village in eighteen ninety-five, as he puts the the second of the two uh epigraphs into Rubere. And that is the moment at which that book is done, and bam, uh, there you go, into the Library of Babel. And uh to obviously the Yellow King, as we mentioned, he will bring you into the Library of Babel because it's a world of of, uh, madness and seeming pattern that you can't make any, uh, use out of an elder god, uh, well, elder gods, just elder god, they, they do whatever they want. Um, and I think that the unnamed entity has got to be one of those mean genies that gives you your wishes. And so you're like, I wish for all the books that were ever written. And sure enough, just cause you didn't listen to the segment, the genie sends you the library of Babel and you don't even have this, the reference book that you would have had if you'd t- contacted time watch or gone through the Necronomicon or some other grimoire that would as, uh, Robin suggests reduce your component letters, uh, shoot you through, uh, onto space and into, uh, the library.
0: Right. Cause some books are safer than others to travel through. Um, right. with, yeah. uh, the copy of the Yellow King, a famous, uh, horror book or uh, the Necronomicon itself, uh, those are, uh, difficult to mess with. You know, the, the Necronomicon is going to, you're going to come through the other end and, and you're going to be a Shagath on the other right. end of that. It's not going to assemble you back. Uh, the way uh, you want to be. It doesn't even know how to do that. It's it's an ultimate expression of chaos trapped in the written word. So uh, our next question, then, is to find the uh, book that uh, you most want to travel through that will lead to the experience on the other side, the version of you that is uh, uh, written into the Library of Babel uh, that is most competent to uh, survive, uh its rigors. Uh right. so you may want, you know, Anne of Green Gables, for example, so that uh you uh come through with uh Anne's uh you know, irrepressible spirit and uh uh, her uh, optimism in the face of a world of uh, sometimes uh, cynical neighbors, and or so,
1: being Borges, you want the copy of the Library of Babel by Jorge Luis Borges, so that you can go through a recursion, and as you are, are continuously doing, you can hop back out, or you just get etched, yeah. into oblivion. Well, that's the downside: is you get you can either get etched or you can ironically gaze at it and pop out. It depends, I guess, on the exact jumbling of your letters as you went through.
0: Well, listeners, I would by no means recommend. The re- infinite recursion route. I, that's just, now, uh, I guess there are, there are no comic books, presumably, according to yeah, the Yeah, cause there's no there's, images.
1: There's no, I mean, drawings. there'd be the scripts of comic books, all the written uh, those, words in comic books.
0: books? Though? I mean, we've already sort of stretched things to include, uh, holograph manuscripts. So,
1: well, it's every possible combination of words. So one of them will be the script to, uh, Amazing Spider-Man number 131 or whatever. Uh, that's just going to be true, right? That's a, a possible combination of words. Again, no exclamation points, so it's not really going to be Amazing Spider-Man 131. But we've agreed to look past that for the sake of this uh, right. segment so as not to be fun ruiners and premise questioners.
0: Right, and and the terrible truth uh, that you encounter uh in the Library of Babel, the thing that uh, Borges did not reveal and, in fact, could not reveal because uh, it was outside of his frame of reference at the time, uh was that... uh when you open one of these books, uh, not only, uh, will it in all likelihood contain just a random agglomeration of uh, letters and punctuation marks, but it's in Comic Sans. <laughs> and that is essentially what has gone wrong with the universe. That is a big problem is that this, uh, they didn't start out in Comic Sans. They started out in, you know, uh, Baskerville or, or, uh, probably Caslon, I would say Caslon body mm-hmm. text. Um, but. Uh, as our world has increasingly gotten out of joint, uh, see previous fact that there's a copy of the Yellow King and the Necronomicon in there. Uh, the, you know, there's a couple of books that are just wrecking everything. And so, uh, your job is to infect, uh, the library with the second most insidious font in order to replace Comic Sans. So you have whatever book you come through with. It may not, in fact, be the manuscript of the book that you want to come through with. but In fact, a copy that you have made, according to the size and binding and specifications, that is uniform in the Library of Babel, uh, which is set in papyrus. In papyrus. Yeah. So uh, it's still terrible, but uh, no other font uh, is strong enough to overcome Comic Sans. And so your job is just to take this book and put it... And the trick, of course, is that you have to find the part of the the library where the Comic Sans version of the book is in order to replace it with the Papyrus
1: version. You have to find the part of the library that has got a bunch of Comic Sans falafel restaurant menus. Yes. Because that that, uh, sort of embolism of inaccuracy will allow you to slip Papyrus right in there.
0: Right. So I guess in that version, you're not trying to find the book you brought with you, but you're trying to find the contagion point uh with which the place uh, that is most sans, vulnerable
1: to being papyrized.
0: Uh right, it's it's uh the original source of the comic sands yet it has this vulnerability that uh so um we've gone of course far beyond the question
1: I like of... that we're cloning the library of babel. That's kind of awesome.
0: So yes, we've gone far beyond the question of of how you get there and we succeeded in answering the question of why would you do that which we began the segment with because uh now you're going to be able to Um, if not save the universe, um, make it slightly less cliched and awful and and stupid. And the the fact that the library of Babel is now in Comic Sans, I think explains a lot uh, about the present day that I I feel that, I I feel edified and educated uh, about this segment. How about you, Ken? You
1: feel a philosophical awakening has come to you from uh, meditating on the works of Borges.
0: Right. Well, uh, since we've now set everything back in order, I'm sure there's no utter rot and nonsense waiting for us on the other side of this commercial. Cthulhu, haster who's the great old one and who's the greatest old one? Time to find out! It's Wrestle con, con, con. The card game from veterans of Magic: The Gathering, Dungeons and Dragons, Epic Spell Wars, and Delta Green. As a fan of all things good, Max Nestorowicz said. I've never played something that captures the rhythm and and back-and-forth of a fighting game like WrestleNomicon from Arc Dream Publishing. Plus, it's filled with eldritch horror goodness, premium puns, and A-plus artwork. Back it while you can. Find WrestleNomicon ConCon at Kickstarter or at WrestleNomicon.com. Nobody puts Baby in the corner. That's because Baby does not believe in conspiracy theories. But we're going into the corner because, well, we don't believe in them exactly. In fact, we do the opposite. But we're here to untangle them. We're here to unmangle them. We're here to look inside them and figure out what makes them tick because we're once again in the conspiracy corner. And this time around, uh, Patreon backer James Griffin presents uh, a new to him, and I think probably new to both of us, uh, World War II and the Pacific conspiracy theory, uh, that, uh, basically, and I have met a commentary about whether this is even a conspiracy theory at all. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, I guess you have to provide the grounding because, uh, this is a, a flight of fancy that, uh, puts forth the possibility that, uh, Douglas MacArthur uh, was a Japanese agent. And, uh, this goes to a whole bunch of other things, uh, including the great controversy about uh, whether a, uh, a surrender of the Japanese forces at the end of World War II was possible without uh, dropping uh, one or both atomic bombs, and uh, but for the young folk in the audience, I guess you know, we need to start. Uh, with who Douglas MacArthur was.
1: Yeah. Douglas MacArthur was the commander of allied ground forces in the Pacific War, which you would think would be kind of a secondary role to the commander of naval forces in the Pacific War. But that's not the Doug MacArthur way. So he and Nimitz butted heads back and forth across the the, 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 the table uh, over and over and over. Uh, MacArthur is legendarily uh, the man who won the war against Japan. Uh, in my estimation, he is something of a overrated goof. Uh, he is also, everyone admits, a vainglorious uh, monster of arrogance. But a guy who gets so badly uh, thumped uh, when the Japanese invade the Philippines in the first place, I think gets to lose their cred as strategic genius, especially if their idea of strategy is pour American lives out like Ditchwater, water, uh, taking one after another tiny fly speck of an island. Now it may be that there's no better way to do it, that you just have to take those islands so you can build the landing zones so you can fly the bombers so you can pummel Japan. I get that argument. That right. said, uh, if people are, gave him a 10th, the guff, they give the immensely superior U- Ulysses S grant. I think we'd have a better argument. Uh, he did admittedly pull off a very great, uh, very brilliant strategic move in Korea, which is sadly after a period uh, with the Incheon landings that uh, managed to save basically the South Korean peninsula from communist aggression in 1950. So that was well done, uh, Doug. But I'm going to put a big skeptical pin in the great reputation of the American Caesar. I'm not a big right. MacArthur fan.
0: Yeah, but unlike uh, most generals, he's part of he's one of a very short list of people who uh, cultivated a persona. that uh, had a lot to do with uh, why they are uh, remembered. So there was a a theatricality to him that uh, Patton had and and others, but that's a big part of why he uh, punches above his uh, weight in history is that uh, there are a lot of people who want to kind of model himself on uh, MacArthur, right? He's the, he is to uh, uh, generals what uh, Hemingway is to uh, writers.
1: <laughs> a bad example you shouldn't follow. <laughs> um, because, of course, he got fired by Truman for uh, saying, let's just drop a bunch of atomic bombs near the Chinese border. See how that works on the Korean War. And, uh, Truman says, let's not ever do that because Truman didn't want to get into a nuclear war with, with China. You can argue right. one way or the other, but I think it should be Truman's call.
0: So that's an instance of him being, uh, uh, rather free with the idea of dropping bombs, but there's a storyline or, or a myth or is it reality, Ken, that, uh, he was looking to, uh, negotiate a surrender and, uh, and if you, if people had just trusted uh, Doug, that, uh, there, there wouldn't have been the necessity for Hiroshima and Nagasaki.
1: Well, that's the, that's the legend, uh, that, uh, our man Peter Lee, the China hand, has, uh, put forth, is that there is a, there, there does exist a report uh, of a memo that was sent by MacArthur to Roosevelt in right. January. P- Peter Lee Reg-
0: is the person who's written this, uh, conspiracy theory. conspiracy theory, right. Uh, theory or, Flight of fancy
1: or what have you. Right. Whatever it is. Speculation. Um, Although you can't just put these things out and not expect them to get sucked into the ecosystem. That's that's
0: the meta part. We'll get to that. That's the meta
1: part. Where we are right now is January of 1945. And allegedly, MacArthur has written a memo because he has received uh, five different Japanese surrender feelers. And he sends the memo to Roosevelt and says... Uh, I've done my job. The Japanese are asking for peace. They just want us to respect the person of the emperor. Um, we can, uh, we, we can end this war and get after fighting the Soviets, our real enemy. And, uh, this memo was leaked. Uh, by the Chicago Tribune, uh, by a reporter named Arthur Trohan, who did not like FDR for many, many reasons. Amongst them, his perceived softness to the real enemy, Soviet communism. Uh, so the Tribune has an ideological stake in it. Trohan has an ideological stake in it. MacArthur has an ideological stake in it. That said, uh, the memo may or may not have ever existed because... It got losted by the army. MacArthur said, oh, I can't give you a copy of the memo. I sent it to the army. Uh, or I sent it to Roosevelt and Roosevelt, you know, set it on fire and ignored it because he was a jerk. So the, the question of did the memo ever even exist or was it MacArthur leaking a falsehood to the Tribune to, uh, weaken Roosevelt and impel the anti-communist factions within, uh, the government, uh, to draw a harder line at Yalta. Obviously that backfired like everything MacArthur ever did. And so, whether he sent a real memo that actually represented real Japanese peace feelers, whether the real Japanese peace feelers were even viable, for example, if they had said, oh, and we're going to still occupy northern China and maintain these giant biological warfare labs and slave labor camps, we might have said, no, we're not cool with that. That's actually outside the the, the remit of the peace agreement. Or whether the uh, uh Roosevelt response was as negative as MacArthur later characterized it as. They might have you know, gone back and asked what's going on or sent, uh, whoever the Pacific version of Alan Dulles was, who was the, the exact same time trying to negotiate an independent surrender of all the SS forces in Italy. They, uh, they, they could have, you know, gone back and forth and what with one thing leading to another. Uh, The Japanese high command does not seem to have recognized that it was in a pickle very late in the war. There was a lot of uh, uh, thinking about the, the kamikazes, for example, were not the actions of a sensible person who was capable of thinking strategically about the war effort. So there's a lot of ifs, ands, or buts. The actual memo is gone. We're left with the credibility of the Chicago Tribune and or Douglas MacArthur for its existence in the first place. That leads to the question of. Did the memo come or did those peace feelers come attached to a bribe offer for the general? Because there is a great book, which I own and love, called uh, Gold Warriors by Sterling and Peggy Seagrave. And its theory is that Yamashita, the Japanese general in the Philippines, gathered up the entire Japanese gold reserve and hid it in a secret cave. And that that secret cave got taken over by the CIA, or act- I guess by the OSS, and then the, by the CIA, and used to fund American duplicity and evil all over the Pacific Ocean forever and ever. Amen. And this this is a terrific book, and it's full of wonderful things. And I recommend everyone to re- race right out and and use it as a as a MacGuffin in all of your post war conspiracy stories. It has its own problems.
0: And, and how do I put this? How, how thin are the margins on the back cover
1: text? <laughs> um, in, in my copy of Gold Warriors, they're pretty thin. Um, but the, uh. So the reliability again, factor of this is. Yeah. But, but again, there was a Japanese gold reserve. We do not know that we found all of it. Uh, and the Japanese were always burying stuff in caves. So who can say, right? Right. And certainly. But who
0: can say is doing a lot of work at it bunch of different
1: steps in this story right and certainly it is unmistakable that the cia laid out a fat ton of money uh building a fairly uh corrupt and certainly monolithic a uh, power structure in japan right after the war and that money had to come from somewhere perhaps it came from the suffering taxpayers of america but perhaps it came from a cave in the philippines
0: so if, if this gold is in is in the hands of the cia who who's bribing who for this memo to be written.
1: I mean the memo would have been written by the Japanese and they would have when they sent the peace feeler they would have offered MacArthur all the gold in exchange for uh, making peace with them. Right. Right. Uh,
0: and the idea that he then turned the cave over to the CIA, does this, uh, I, I guess, you know, he would get a certain percentage of this in, in this, uh, in this theory or or whatever it is.
1: Well, I mean, I think the theory is that basically you're giving him a slush fund so that he can rule the Pacific ocean with an iron hand. And in fairness, uh, that is exactly what he did between 1945 and 1951. He was the, uh, appointed military governor of Japan and uh, was very widely considered to be the shogun of of Japan, uh, uh, setting down policy with a fine disregard for whatever they wanted in the State Department. Yeah. His goal was, as he saw it, to rebuild Japan as an industrial power and a bulwark in the war against communism. And, right. and uh, that's that's where he the- did that. <laughs> That's where the modern day Yakuza, uh, begins mm-hmm. and, uh. And the, and most of the Japanese industrial combines, uh, have their start based out of who MacArthur gave the right to, you know, make tires or whatever. Uh, and the, uh, liberal democratic party in Japan, which as the jokes about the Holy Ro- Roman Empire, uh, go is barely either or not either also gets its start as a political machine in the MacArthur occupation.
0: So if I'm following this correctly, the point of this uh, theory is to prove that the dropping of the bombs was unnecessary because there was a real peace offer, and you could tell there was a real peace offer because they bribed MacArthur in order <laughs> to <laughs> further it. Right. Uh, and then he established essentially an official shogun power in Japan and got to decide uh, what was what in, in modern Japan. And right. This seems to lack, shall I say, a consistent through-line.
1: <laughs> I mean, the the sort of, uh, even the author, our, uh, and we have previously discussed how meta this is, he says the words, I will now provide an extra helping of crazy bananas as part of my effort to make the internet more interesting.
0: Yes, and then he goes <laughs> on to describe this not as a theory, but as an alternate history. Right. And here's where we get to the meta part. So this is your classic, uh, just sort of a flight of fancy, your... Uh, it's, it's not a did happen, it's a could have happened. And this is, uh, step one in how a conspiracy theory gets going. Now I don't, uh, with all of the, uh, other stuff going through the conspiratorial bloodstream at this point, I don't know if this would ever uh, gain purchase because, uh, for one thing, the, because the through line is muddled, it's not even clear whose ideological interests it would serve to start thinking of this as possibly being true, right? Who, who in today's world uh, would benefit from uh, adopting that story and, and spreading it? I can't think of anybody.
1: I mean, on the Putinist model of sowing maximal chaos, if you imagine some Stalinist mimeticist spreading this in 1945, it simultaneously embarrasses MacArthur and FDR, So, it takes both wings of the American argument and nobbles them. MacArthur is uh, painted as a vainglorious tidpot dictator who would accept a mountain of gold as a bribe. And Roosevelt is depicted as a bloodthirsty warmonger who would obliterate two Japanese cities for no better reason than to uh, shove an unwanted settlement down MacArthur's throat. So... That is sort of the, you know, if you were looking for a a qui bono to this conspiracy theory, it's Stalin. You have to go back in time to when all of these (laughs) issues mattered. Right, Right. Except that the theory was apparently not super current in 1945, barring this piece in the Tribune. And the Tribune left out the part about MacArthur being bribed, A, because it probably didn't happen, and B, because that would not have served the Tribune's interests, which were very much embarrassed Roosevelt, very much amp up MacArthur. Um, And of course, MacArthur uh, briefly toyed with running for president in 1952, but fortunately for America, Dwight Eisenhower said, you know what? I feel Republican today and ran instead.
0: Right. So not only is this conspiracy theory not current, it doesn't (laughs) relate to any present fault line issues that that reverberate with people, but it's also unlike most conspiracy theories in that it's a story of two bad guys interacting with each other to uncertain ends. Mm -hmm. And the things that I think really sticky conspiracy theories offer is a, a clear good guy and bad guy that invert the uh, traditional order of who's good and who's bad, and also a very clear and stupid narrative. That, you know, because simplicity is uh, is more attractive than uh, than reality. And the uh, the dumber a conspiracy theory is, uh, provided it is simple and provides. And inverted, uh, morality, that's what makes, uh, something sticky. So this, if, if it had that qualities and you just, uh, had something else that, that did that. And then you, uh, put up a blog post saying, well, this probably didn't happen. And it's kind of bananas, but here's an alternate reality. That is something if it had those meta qualities that then could, uh, you know, through the, uh, international internet game of telephone, and uh people making stuff up in uh in forums could snowball uh pretty quickly, but uh as I said, would have to have those qualities.
1: Yeah, the 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 reason that it was the that the parts of it have been sticky, the two halves that Lee puts together is that they have that. Um so you have the notion that uh FDR uh, massacred uh, uh, half a million people just to be soft on communism. That is obviously very sticky with the sort of John Birch uh, uh right wing. And indeed, the article in the Tribune that we have referenced is uh, a favorite of various uh Holocaust denial websites. So don't Google it. <laughs> and so it was sticky that way. And of course, the Yamashita's gold uh, scenario is super sticky with Uh, the left, uh, people who are like, uh, it's unfair that the CIA beat us six ways from Sunday in Japan and the Philippines and everywhere except Vietnam and Cambodia. Uh, there must've, they must've cheated. They must've had a secret stash of gold uh, backing their play. And and then it's
0: the fusion of the two that confuses which ethos it serves.
1: And and so the the sort of pirate gold CIA combo is super strong and the, um, uh, Uh, Roosevelt, uh, dropping bombs, uh, to, to, to surrender to Stalin is super strong, but as a mix, they're very, um, uh, you know, uh, peanut butter and olive oil. They're, they're not what you want.
0: Um, and so, uh, I guess, uh, is there even anything in this that could have a gaming, certainly a game set in, uh, the Japanese occupation that explores the connection between, uh, The Yakuza and, uh, you know, the rebirth of the Japanese right, but, you know, it's now an American style right plus the, uh, the years of, uh, industrialization. And there's a a ton of movies that you can go to for that, including the, uh, early episodes of the, uh, battles without honor or humanity series. Uh, that is an incredible, uh, fertile, uh, area to play, whether you want to do it as a, as a crime drama or a crime drama with a, uh, supernatural element hidden under the hood or just as a uh, drama system pitch. So there's certainly, uh, uh that element. Uh, and I guess uh, time watch could go back and try and fix history. If they find out that all of a sudden these two stories have fused together and become true. And that's created, uh, various, uh, time stream weirdnesses and they have to, uh, you know, undo the uh, reification of this uh, initially crazy conspiracy theory. Uh, how else would you use these in, in a game?
1: I mean, I would, I mean, uh, this is sort of cheating, but I think gold warriors, the Seagrave book makes a great fall of Delta Green resource because it's got lots of names and dates and places and hidden mountains full of gold and you could absolutely tie that into Delta Green and say that Delta Green has their share of the gold or Delta Green is trying to get the gold away from Majestic or that Delta Green is investigating some sort of – um uh, the, there's the Japanese Black Ocean Society that survives the war and is slowly being rebuilt in the Delta Green uh, continuity. So they could be you know, figuring out, oh, that they've got connections through the CIA to this mountain of gold and we have to take it away from them. Lots of different possibilities with that. The MacArthur half is – I mean, I think we've sort of agreed that it's it's literally chaos for chaos's sake. A universe in which both of those are true has to be sort of like the old Illuminatus trilogy where you discover non-compatible conspiracies over and over and over as a means of emphasizing the absurdity of the world. Uh Foucault's Pendulum does a little of that as well. So if you're playing a conspiracy game whose meta message is conspiracies are crazy bananas, having this be true... I think makes for a nice mid-level revelation that, oh, yeah, the, MacArthur was a Japanese agent. Everybody knows that. The guy says smoking a cigarette in the Venetian blind shadows. And you're right. like, what? So this is
0: uh, sort of occurring in a Terry Southern universe. It's like you're doing a prequel to uh, Dr. Strangelove where you meet uh, Colonel Jack D. Ripper.
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I like that. That he's um, a, a, a key element in MacArthur's uh, purported coup attempt um, uh, in the 1950s and then uh, he's connected somehow to the mountain of gold. I, I, I like that the prequel to uh, General Ripper's uh, career.
0: Yeah, well, you, you know, you, you don't uh, get those plans to end the world without some gold to work with. Well, on that note, uh, I think we can uh, uh, pat ourselves on the back pen for having successfully fielded uh, four different backer requests. And uh, now we've only got a metric zillion of requests to get to. But uh, next week, uh, the requests will be uh, given us by our uh, the live audience we'll be recording in front of because our next episode is going to uh, emanate uh, into your eardrums from a medieval castle in Poland. And uh, you'll know more about that next, next week. week stuff having once again been talked about it's time to thank our sponsors atlas games Pelgrane press asfagown arc dream dork tower and pro fantasy software
1: music as always is by james semple audio editing by rob borges get your priority question asking access by supporting our patreon at patreon.com backslash can and robin
0: get lost in your own labyrinthine largesse with such patreon backers as andrew jones mark Galliotti, Rafe ball patrick joint and at i festoon yourself with ken and robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash ken robin
1: wear such shirts as fun ruiner on twitter
0: he's at kenneth height and he's at robin d laws see you next time when once again we will talk about stuff